Welcome to This Is Nursing, a podcast about nurses by nurses. Let's get going. Hey, welcome to This Is Nursing. It's a podcast about nurses by nurses where we talk about their work and all the things that make their jobs exciting, complex, and unique. I'm Vicki, and I'm here with Tyler, a colleague and a pal. We're going to be your host today as we explore the world of nursing. Today on our show, we're talking with Peter Vermeulen, uh, who is an RPN and uh, works with AHS here in our FAIR organization. And he's going to help us understand uh, registered psychiatric nursing through his lens. Thanks for being here with us today, Peter. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, we always we start out this podcast generally exploring people's backgrounds. We want to know who you are. We want to put you in the hot seat with the bright lights on you and tell us everything we need to know about being an RPN, your career, your role. Where did you come from? Where do you live? What's going on in your life? What's what makes you excited about nursing? Sounds good. Um, yeah, a little bit about myself. My name is Peter Vermeulen. I'm a uh, proud registered psychiatric nurse who found my career completely by accident. There's a story behind that. Um, but uh, presently, I am one of three addiction and mental health uh, professional practice leads in the Edmonton zone. Um, I'm passionate about what I do. I'm passionate about making making folks better and, and just improving quality of life. So, yeah. Um, how how did I become an RPN? I kind of alluded to that. I found the career by accident. Um, so full disclosure, I am a failed EMT. I was a lifeguard previous to that, so the crossover to EMS made sense. Um, except for whatever reason, I had great difficulties passing the registration test. But the good thing was that I did my EMT preceptorship in the, the bustling metropolis of Pinoca, Alberta. Um, and and at that time, um, the ambulance service there had the contract to do interfacility transfers. So when somebody was admitted to inpatient psychiatry through Red Deer Regional and a bed was available at the then Alberta Hospital Pinoca, we would do the transfer. Mm-hmm. Um, the majority of these transfers were done late in the late, late evening hours. Uh, and and by virtue of being an interfacility transfer, um, there was that decreased level of urgency. So it led to some really good conversation between the patient and EMS crew. Um, In comparison, a medical response call would be much more fast paced. So in doing a lot of these transfers, I I quickly learned that everybody has a story and every story is unique um, and every story is worth hearing. So as time passed in my preceptorship, I became much more interested in learning about people's stories more so than doing an ECG or starting an IV. And then once we would drop the patient off at the hospital, it would be into the early hours of the night. Uh, we would hang around and catch up with the nursing staff. So it gave me a really good opportunity to learn more about what psychiatric nursing looked like as a career. So finished my preceptorship and then realized I needed Chem 30. So I did that again and got a, uh, a what do they call it? Good enough, Mark, to get in through the door. <laughs> Um, chem, chemistry 30, that was, that was my Achilles heel, but, uh, it was very much the price of admission uh, to get where yeah. I needed to be. So. Well, we're so glad that you made it through that, uh, that hoop you had to jump through and that you're here with us. And so you're a professional practice lead. So tell us about that. Like, is it a desk job? Are you still, um, involved in clinical care? What does that look like for those that don't know what a, a PPL does? 
So I, I guess the best way I could describe it in a sentence is, is a problem solver. Um, I actively seek out opportunities for improvement. Um, I do get tasked with um, projects, uh, program reviews, um, optimizing our, our information, our databases, and, and basically making sure that what we are doing and the care that we are providing is evidence informed. Um, it is best practice and, uh, and kind of acting as a consultant in that way. Um, so I, that's great. And I, I think this is one of my favorite quotes so far from, you know, everyone has a story and everyone's story is worth listening to. That's a great quote. And I, that resounds, resonates with me. Um, my question for you <clears throat> is about, um, so I come from Ontario, you know, hold for applause. Um, but uh, so we don't have uh, psychiatric nurses that they don't have them there uh, yet. Uh, regulated psychiatric nurses, registered psychiatric nurses there. So is it for me as a learning when I came to Alberta and I continue to learn from people like you and some of your great colleagues about how RP, the RPN role is, is it overlaps of course with some of the other nursing roles, but it is, is absolutely unique. So can you help us understand how, how an RPN would sort of strengthen an interprofessional sort of nursing team? Absolutely, yeah. Um, RPNs, it's, you know, we're, we're fortunate enough um, within our great country of Canada, it's Manitoba West uh, that does have the RPN designation. Um, and just for context for years, they've been talking about uh, uh, kind of promoting the RPN designation across Canada. And what, what the pragmatics are that, um, I, I don't really know. But so simply said, every every discipline has a different perspective on healthcare. And, and the best way I can liken it to is kind of like the school bus analogy, as I call it. Um, Tyler, Vicky, did you did you ever take the school bus to school? As an example. I actually never did. I, I walked my whole career, which is funny because now my kids are getting on the school. So I'm learning all about the stuff that goes on in school buses. But I, I never did as a kid. But did you walk to school uphill both ways? Yeah, both ways. Absolutely. And it was always snowing and uh, and I rarely had boots uh, on my feet. No, I'm kidding. Um, barefoot. Yeah. So <laughs> you're a dad. So the dad dad joke fits, you know, if the, if the boot fits, you should probably wear it up the hill in the snow. That's so right. uh, I also did not take the school oh, bus to school, so that I'm really sorry that this is okay. just falling flat. But yeah. you know what? I did take it on field trips, like you know, outdoor ed and all that sort okay. of thing. So I'm, I'm, I get it. <laughs> all right, okay, fair enough. So, so go forward with this. So, when when folks take the school bus, um, you know, as, as students in elementary school, like whenever I took the school bus to school, I'd always have the same seat. Um, and so everybody would kind of go to what's familiar, what they know, and and they would all sit in kind of the usual seats, and they would all look out their windows to the exact same world around us, but by virtue of where we're sitting in the bus, we each have a, a unique view specific to where we were sitting. So registered psych nurses, they they we, we kind of we're like the the oddballs that kind of stand in the aisle of the school bus and travel around taking turns sitting with other disciplines to look out their window of client care um so in that sense we might sit with lpns or rns to view um the world through their to view their client care world through a predominantly medical lens uh but then we might pop up and move over and hang out with a social worker or a psychologist to get a different perspective of that world around us um Kind of adding to it too, you know, RPNs by nature were were active listeners, so we're not necessarily conditioned to ask close-ended questions. Um, so what that might look like, as an example, if a 
if a middle-aged male came to hospital following a car accident, uh, yes, we'd be obviously tuned into the physical trauma and the medical um, complications associated with that. But we'd also take a step back and consider um, we'd also consider and follow up on how that motor vehicle collision could change the patient's life. How would the patient be able to go back to work? Would there be a potential for chronic pain? How is the patient processing the event? What is that patient's level of resilience? What could we do to potentially bolster that resilience to facilitate a better recovery? Would those physical injuries sustained in the, in the car accident result in financial stressors? Would that affect housing? Would that affect relationships? Mm. How does this patient cope with stress? Do they have good coping, bad coping? And and kind of taking even one big bigger step back, you know, in a, for additional context, um, people who who die by suicide are over overwhelmingly middle-aged males who have chronic medical conditions, chronic pain employment difficulties, financial stressors, housing stressors, relationship stressors, mm -hmm. and, and substance use concerns. So in that sense, a history of mental health concerns is a factor, but it's not necessarily a causative factor. So so in that sense, we we view we view our patients just a little bit differently than mm -hmm. other disciplines would, I guess. That's kind of you're just using different um, triage scales, I suppose, like if a nurse is doing vitals, neurovitals, you know, running through in their mind, you know, how the patient presents, you're maybe doing an ACEs score or um, whatever, like any type of screening in your mind and going through and evaluating in that same way, but just with a different system. Is that does is that true? Does that feel right? It's kind of as you described it, I was thinking, oh, okay, yes, you're still doing your head to toe in a way, but it's like through a different lens. You know, that explanation was helpful for me. Again, another great um, reason why how a team, which was, I think, my question, um, you know, could benefit from different types of providers. Like you said, I like that bus an analogy where everybody sits mm -hmm. in the seats and, you know, so let, yeah, the, the sort of sort of rising above the what's in front of us medically, right? Because, you know, we do get kind of that sort of uh, tunnel, not tunnel vision, but that's often a primary focus, particularly in acute care. But then, yeah, that more primary health approach or that those social determinants of health, you know, thinking about, you know, where, where did this patient come from and where would they be going back to? And how mm -hmm. does this this illness, whatever's happening to them here, how does that impact all of it? So you're the kind of wide angle lens in that scenario, particularly around the kind of mental health pieces. Right, right. And I guess, and, and thanks for that, Tyler, just to, to jump off that point too, um, addiction mental health is everywhere. It's in mm -hmm. it's in every level of acute care, to, to your point about social determinants of health. Um, there's so much about that. We see it everywhere. So we have the ability and the resources to better respond to those individualized client care needs. Here's an opportunity to do it. Um, and I know that was one of my, my, one of our previous chats here, Tyler, was, you know, is in in terms of um, expanding the presence of the RPN to those non-traditional care settings. So something that would not be addiction and mental health related, um, psychiatric nurses can complement existing care. It's, uh, you know, mm. provided by the interdisciplinary team. It's not about a contest of who can do more, but it's more so that view of what can the individual designation add to augment mm -hmm. the total care provided to the client. Um, and again, AMH concerns are, are are present in all areas of medicine, um, yet much of the existing and available AMH care provided is largely diagnostic based. 
consultation liaison psychiatry um, as an example if somebody would uh, would be admitted to ICU um, following an overdose. You know, a consultation liaison psychiatry could be consulted. They may show up and say, yep, this person has a uh, an opioid use disorder. Okay. Yeah. And now what? Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. And and again, anecdotal information. Um, one of my neighbors is a, is an intensivist, and you know, we were talking one day, and I asked him, you know, how much how much of the addiction mental health population do you see? And he said, hands down, easily thirty to forty percent of folks in the ICU are there, either post suicide attempt, post overdose, um, post trauma related to substance use. So we we have this huge chunk of a very vulnerable population that we're we're missing the opportunity to really optimize excellent care delivery mm -hmm. that makes sense for my babbling no that that really that's really makes sense i think and you know and of course you know mental health is increasing we're talking about it more and we know that we recognize that there's a um we're, you know we're, we're short on access to you know problems with access to care we're short on programs but yeah uh, i mean Thinking about how um, how different strategies that we could just incorporate into the work that we're already doing, right, with our patients, and however they access the care, all kinds of different ways. That's an opportunity to intervene potentially or support. Um, you mm -hmm. know, and just to jump off that point there too, Tyler, um, and just for additional context there, I know, as an example, trauma informed care uh, we talk right. about other time. Um, it's still in in the grand scheme of healthcare. It's still relatively a newish concept. Right. Um, so we as healthcare providers, we want to be aware of the, the trauma that our clients have experienced, but we don't want to to unnecessarily unpack that trauma um, because we don't want to re-traumatize our patients by bringing up past traumas. And and sometimes mm -hmm. this shows like minimal verbal interaction. So the challenge is is kind of clearly discerning trauma informed care, which we should all be doing regardless of our practice settings to trauma specific care but that's that's another conversation for another day um and i i know one of the questions i often get is what is like how do you do trauma informed care mm -hmm. um and and i have a really really neat example of it um it's something that i think a lot of us do without even being conscious that we do it so a couple of months ago there was a there was a workshop put on at McEwen University um, that was facilitated by the Faculty of Nursing, and it was on um, death notification. So I saw I saw the ad for it. I thought, well, this is maybe this is like in response to COVID and the amount of you know deaths that nurses have have encountered. But I ended up signing up and I went. Um, and interestingly enough, it was uh, it was made for a police audience. Um, a police and first responder audience. So myself and a colleague of mine went um, and we sat through an eight hour trauma informed care presentation that did not reference trauma informed care once. They talked about um, being thoughtful, being kind, being considerate, being intentional with your actions. Um, and, and again, like when you're when you're dealing with something that's quite heavy of notifying somebody that their loved one um, has passed, um, how do you do that? And mm -hmm. and what what are those feelings that come up for you? What are the feelings that have come up for them? But ultimately, at the end of the day, how do you remain thoughtful, considerate, and kind? 
So again, it's something that mm. it, we do in healthcare all the time, but we just don't call it, right. you know, we call it yeah. something different, right? Yeah. So um, you talked about, you know, working uh, as an RPN with other teams and the value of that real, you know, strong collaboration to best support patient care and patient outcomes um, in all cases, right? If we're, you know, looking uh, primarily at their medical concerns, but then recognizing that, you know, you cannot ignore their, um, you know, their mental health concerns. Uh, anytime that we have patients that are in the hospital, you can guarantee that they're going to be going through some range of emotions about their experience there. And so I guess I'm just really curious, um, you know, what does that look like for you in its optimal state? Do you have any stories or any encounters that you thought, wow, this is really what things should look like? Yeah, absolutely. Um... It's it's interesting. The further I'm in my career, the more stories I forget. So it's a little bit harder to bring them back. Um, and again, kind of keeping uh, keeping patient confidentiality. Confident. Wow, I can't talk. <laughs> patient confidentiality in mind. Oh my gosh. Well, for um, those of us that don't know, it's that time of the morning where the coffee has worn off just enough for us, our tongues, to enough. get lazy. So you know, enough. we're in that boat together. Don't worry, I'm with you. So I will, uh, okay, I've got three stories. I'll start off with uh, with one that is one of the more memorable ones. Um, and, and again, this is me speaking in very, very general terms. Uh, so a few years ago, uh, the RCMP pulled over a speeding driver. Um, RCMP member walks up and says, hey, why are you going so fast? And he answers, the driver answers, I can't tell you, national security. So the RCMP member thought that this fellow was clearly delusional, um, apprehended him on Form 10 of the Mental Health Act, oh. uh, and then brought him to emerge. And the fellow kept reiterating, you know, I, I can't tell you, national security. So the emergency physician said, you're delusional. Off to psychiatry you go. Off to psychiatry he goes, what are you doing here? What happened? Can't tell you, national security. So ultimately, this fellow is admitted to inpatient psychiatry with a diagnosis equivalent to unspecified psychosis. Um, but a couple of days later, a couple of very official looking men in trench coats uh, came to the hospital and uh, flashed them credentials and got the man out, never to be heard of again. Thank goodness. Um, and this this for context was, I want to say mid 80s, but uh, within our world, it's it's kind of one of those legendary stories. So. Well, yeah. <laughs> Another That's instance, uh, he, would, he was oriented it. times three. He would like, yeah, just didn't believe him. <laughs> yeah, just can't tell you national security. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, another one I was working uh, at Mercy Psychiatry, um, and, and there was a lady who presented. She was in her mid 60s, brought in by police um, on a Form 10 apprehension after her family called. Uh, they described kind of like a, a week long sudden onset of. A history of bizarre behavior. So all signs kind of pointed to a psychotic disorder and thus it was believed she had a psychotic disorder, but kind of taking a step back and looking at it differently, people, you know, folks in their mid-60s don't all of a sudden develop schizophrenia. So any sudden change is likely medical or substance related, um, but it was an astute emergency mental health nurse that recognized that something was amiss and advocated for uh, a little bit more clarity with some additional blood work. Um, beyond what was originally ordered. And in doing so, she found out that the uh, the patient had a 
super low INR level. So it turns out the reason behind the uh, bizarre behavior was a stroke, which had happened a week before. So again, kind of to that point of if you're not looking for it, you may not see it. So hence the value of of looking out through a different a different mm -hmm. window on the school bus, right? Um, so it's really putting together all of those those great minds and all of those like really keen assessment skills in different areas of expertise, I suppose, that will lend us, you know, a more efficient way of, I guess, triaging, but also a more patient-centered way of doing things. And, you know, I, I just keep going back to that point of if you're not necessarily looking for it, you may not see it. And, and interestingly, that leads into my, my final story. Um, so back in 2017, uh, I, I started doing some recruit lectures for Edmonton Fire. Um, there was an identified gap in their training specific to addiction mental health awareness, um, specifically interpersonal communication, active listening skills, assessing medical and psychiatric risk and, and such. So, you know, as, as first responders, they, they very much fire members will be uh, what they call de facto gatekeepers of addiction mental health care. So it, it makes sense um, to at least have an increased awareness of what you may run into by virtue of your job. So in, in my first chat, um, I spoke of medical conditions that look like mental health. So you know, diabetes with an altered level of consciousness, post-ictal psychosis from epilepsy, anything substance withdrawal related, post-concussion syndrome, um, and, and hypothyroidism. So in, in my chat, I had mentioned that you know if you have a super low thyroid level it will mimic symptoms of depression and a treatment with an antidepressant would be ineffective because you wouldn't be treating the thyroid levels right so i, I kind of gave my song and dance and didn't think anything about it but in the next recruit class um i was approached by one of the instructors who told me that you know that that knowledge had changed my life then what do you mean he's like i have been prescribed a high dose of an antidepressant for years and it's never worked but after that lecture and hearing about thyroid levels i went to my family doctor and funny enough he's like i'm in my mid-40s i've never had my thyroid checked so he checked it and i have no thyroid <laughs> so what? he was able to get off of this high dose of antidepressants that weren't working because it was treating the wrong thing um got on the Synthroid, new prescription of that, any any symptoms that could mimic symptoms of depression resolved entirely. Wow. And so again, like if you're not looking for it, you're not going to see it. So, you know, and, and it's something, yeah. sorry? That's remarkable. It, uh, yeah, so that it, and, and, you know, 20 years is just peppered with these stories of, and these stories of wins that, you know, and I, I don't know the best way to say it is like in nursing and healthcare it's it's easy to remember situations that have bad health outcomes it's it's so easy to remember the the quote unquote frequent flyer patients the clients that you see over and over for the same things um and it's it brings up a lot of moral distress you see a lot of hurt a lot of pain a lot of loss and that just comes with being a healthcare provider but it's really, really hard to remember the good stories, the success stories, the people that you see once on their worst day under the worst circumstances, 
and then you don't see them again and you don't see them again because you've done your job and you've done your job well and i think especially now that's one thing that we can really have that intentional cognitive shift as healthcare providers to really remember on what worked like what is the good and those good stories that that fills our cups pumps our tires it keeps us going and it keeps us to, it keeps us effective and it it keeps us um in a position where we're able to help people and i think that's pretty cool I think that's very cool. <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, those, again, those stories are remarkable. And just listening uh, to you, and, and again, I continue to, and will hope to continue to work and learn from you and other RPN, uh, psychiatric nurses. So here's my question for you. Um, you know, to those, either to those um, people thinking about going into nursing and choosing psychiatric nursing over some of the other types of nursing or, you know, what's what's your recommendation to them? And then also, you know, this is our little pitch to, you know, to those teams out there to consider having RPNs on just adding an RPN to your team. You know, what are some, you know, what are some uh, just a kind of a, a comment to them? If we have a designation that we could use more and optimize more um, and integrate more we we could deliver better client care. But I, I just think, you know, in terms of retention, recruitment, we have so many very, very knowledgeable, capable, brand new psych nursing grads coming out of the gates. Um, mm -hmm. And we're we're really missing an opportunity to to get those folks working in those non-traditional areas. I mean, current state psychiatric nurses work in complex medical detox. Mm -hmm. um, which is akin to ICU light. Uh, there's actually one of my former students is is working in medical ICU as an RPN with the blessing of her regulatory body and the facility that she works out of. Um, so there's these opportunities and well, and, and you right, really want the right it. person doing the right job at the right time, right? Like that's the the whole thing is if you've got that competency developed, then certainly, why not? If you don't, then you know what are the competencies that you have developed, and let's leverage those in those right circumstances. Um, and sorry, Tyler, back to your other point of you know, kind of, what's your thoughts on on somebody who's considering a career in psychiatric nursing? Um, it's interesting, as a lot of the majority of psychiatric nurses out there, uh, we end up becoming psychiatric nurses. We rarely set out. You know, out of the gates, out of high school, looking to do it, um, and it's it's neat just kind of reflecting back on my own cohort. Uh, we had a fellow that was a used car salesman. Um, the guy that sat beside him had a graduate degree in pharmacology. You know, we had a few stay-at-home moms. There was a student the year after me who came in with a PhD in English literature. So it's it's a, it's this huge, varied post-secondary experiences. You know, you see it frequently. There's a background in psychology. Um, but more recently, the program has attracted quite a few students who have who have education and training from other countries, you know, pharmacy, engineering, medicine, even um, occasionally LPNs. But the program is the program offered at McEwen is condensed. So it's off the top of my head. I want to say it's 90 credits over two and a half years. I may be wrong on it. So so by nature of the short time um, and the compressed nature of it, it attracts a lot of folks who are looking for that second or third career. And again, we, you know, the majority of us, no different than me, being a failed EMT, I, I ended up as an RPN, but I didn't start out uh, wanting to become an RPN. 
Well, that's great. Thank you for that, uh, Peter. And and uh, you know, I think maybe maybe not so much a failed EMT, but you just uh, you know, what's the what's a different way of thinking about that? Uh, just saw another saw, saw another saw another opportunity. You, it was you who chose not to to pursue it, right? Yeah. yeah. The universe had a plan for you, Peter. That's right. Maybe that's right. maybe that was it. Yeah. <laughs> But I think that, you know, I mean, we could talk and talk to you a lot for a lot longer, and, but this has been really, really good and helpful. And I hope I hope we can uh, help spread the word and, and share the great value of having RPNs in our healthcare system. Like we like we said, we're not all, not all jurisdictions are, are so lucky, so we should be okay. really trying to take advantage. So thanks for spending some time with us uh, this morning. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for stopping by. You can find us at AHS Podcast. Please, please subscribe. Musical introduction is thanks to Yes Nice. You can find them on Apple Music, iTunes, and Spotify. See you next time.